If you have your Bibles, I want you to take them to the book of Ezekiel, the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, chapter number 17. Also, I do want to remind you that next week, I believe, is our fifth Sunday, and so we will be observing the Lord's Supper as we're going to make as our, as our uh, regular practice of this special time of communion. That will be next Sunday, so please be in, be here next Sunday and and join us as we celebrate what Christ has done for us on the cross through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. That'll be next week. Ezekiel chapter number 17. And we're going to read two verses of Scripture, verse 22 and 23. Ezekiel chapter 17 and verse number 22. Thus saith the Lord God, I will also take of the highest branch of the, top of the highest cedar, and will set it. And I will crop off the top of his young twigs a tender one. And I will plant it upon an high mountain and eminent. In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it. And it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit. And be a goodly cedar. And under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing. And in the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. I want us to go to the Lord in prayer. And I want to speak to you this morning on this subject. There's room at the cross for you. There's room at the cross for you. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we are so grateful that it is not I, it is not us that persevere through this life, but you in us that drives us on, that meets our needs, that causes us to persevere. God, I pray that you would help us to yield our lives to be so that you may live through us. Father, this morning as we look at this passage of Scripture and we celebrate the, the diamond, the, the glorious gem of God's outworkings of His sovereign plan, the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we fall more deeply in love with what you have done within us, your, your immense and astounding gift of your dear Son on the cross of Calvary. God, may we once again find refuge in the wings of our Lord Jesus, in the boughs of this goodly tree. God, we ask this in Jesus' precious name and for His glory. Amen and amen. Ira Stampheel was born in 1914 at Bellevue, New Mexico after his parents had migrated there in a covered wagon from Arkansas. Stampheel was converted to Jesus Christ at the age of 12 and by the, age, by the time he was 22 years old, he began to preach and start preaching revival meetings throughout the country. He was not only an evangelist, but he was also an accomplished songwriter and musician, writing many of the hymns that we sing in they're sung in churches all over the world. And in 1946, Stamp Hill was preaching a meeting in, uh, in Kansas City, Missouri. It was a revival meeting. And part of the way he would write songs was really unique. He would ask the church members to think of a title to a song. No lyrics, just the title to a song. And then write it on a slip of paper. Those slips of paper would be collected and handed to Iris Stamp Hill. This guy was so 
keen and good at writing uh, lyrics to songs and songs and hymns that he would take and file through all of those names and titles until he come across one uh, that would strike a chord with his heart. And then he would, during the service, during the music and the offerings and the special singing or whatever, he would write the lyrics to that song while he was on stage. It's incredible, powerful intellect to do that. Well, in Kansas City, during this meeting, that was his routine. He had collected a number of slips of paper. And as he sat on the platform going through those slips of paper, he saw one uh, that really caught his attention. It was, it was, a, it was a, a, a title that just pierced his heart. And as he, as he began to think about that and the words written on that paper for the title, he began to formulate one of the most beloved gospel songs that the world has ever known. Listen to the lyrics of this song. The cross upon which Jesus died is a shelter in which we can hide. And it's grace so free is sufficient for me, and deep is its fountain as wide as the sea. Do you, do you know the chorus? There's room at the cross for you. There's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. Yes, there's room at the cross for you. You know, the day in which Ezekiel wrote these, this text in Ezekiel chapter 17 was some 600 years before the man Jesus of Nazareth was born in that little Bethlehem stable. But this exiled prophet in Ezekiel 17, he looks into the telescope of divine foresight and sees an unusual tree. A tree whose branches provide a safe haven for all manner of bird to reside. Now, many scholars have tried to loosely apply this prophecy to King Zerubbabel. He was one of the kings after the exilic period and the people of Israel were freed from Babylonian captivity and been able to come back to Jerusalem to reestablish themselves as a nation. Zerubbabel was one of the, one of the more powerful kings in his leadership. And many have, have likened this passage or seen its fulfillment in King Zerubbabel. But I have to admit, as we read the text itself, it is a little over the top to be just an ordinary king of history. It is, beyond, it is beyond reference to any mortal man, but I believe it is a foretelling of the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. In this vision, God is giving to us in picture His remedy for the condition of fallen sinful man. Since Adam and Eve fell in the garden, man has been broken by sin and rebellion against God. God being a holy and just God, He must punish sin. He must pass judgment upon those who rebel against Him. He must punish the evildoer. But to keep from that, God out of His great love and mercy, unwilling to cast man into, uh, into outer darkness and judgment for all of eternity provided a refuge from the coming tidal wave of His judgment. And that refuge is our Lord Jesus Christ. He created a tree. 
in this passage of Scripture that refuge is seen as a tree. And I believe that tree is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Ezekiel's prophecy is telling us that long before this unnamed uh, person wrote on that slip of paper, there's room at the cross for you. Long before that was ever written, Ezekiel is telling us that there is room at the cross for every person. There's room at Jesus' feet for every person. Every person can find refuge in the cross of Jesus Christ by realizing three reasons as to why there is room at the cross. Why is this statement so true? Why does it speak so clearly to the gospel? I believe there are three reasons that we can follow. The first one is this. There's room at the cross for you because of the remedy presented. The remedy presented. Now, Ezekiel 17, if you'll read the entire chapter, uh, you know, um, a, a, a sermon or a, 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 a homily or a message is a pretext if it doesn't pay attention to the context. So the context of this passage, if you'll read all of Ezekiel 17, is very much a chapter of judgment. Ezekiel is prophesying judgment upon the people of Israel. The Hebrew people had forsaken their God. They had rejected the law. But at the end of the chapter, God shows Ezekiel a ray of hope. God is presenting a remedy, a coming Messiah, not only for the rebellious Hebrews, but for all of sinful humanity. This is one of those places in the scripture where we are given insight to the fact that the gospel is not just for the Hebrew, but for all manner of fowl, for every bird of every wing, there is place of salvation and refuge in this tree. So when we think about the remedy presented, I want to look at these verses and draw out comparisons to our Lord Jesus. Number one, the first thing we see is a humiliating entrance. Look at with me at verse number 22. Thus saith the Lord God, I will also take of the highest branch of the top cedar and will set it. And I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one. Many, many people when they think about Jesus, they mark his beginning, his historical beginning, to being that of that stable in Bethlehem, that little manger where they lay, where Mary laid the baby Jesus down. But in reality, Jesus existed long before that Bethlehem night. We see in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we find later on in that first chapter that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us and tabernacled with us. 1 Timothy 3.16 gives us that same reality. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God became flesh in the person of Jesus. God, uh, Jesus was with God and Jesus was God long before the Judean stable. He was worshipped by angels long before the creative works of the book of Genesis ever took place. And yet our text says that God took of the heights of heaven that tender branch and planted it on another mountain. 
This is no doubt an allusion to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who lay aside the royal robes of deity in heaven and put on the rags of humble man. He walked among, he walked away from the beauty and riches of heaven to take up his abode among the hovels of Nazareth. The apostle Paul said it best himself in Philippians 2, 6 and 7. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and put upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. God who did not owe us anything saved the fires of eternal judgment loved us so much that He sent His Son to live among us. Jesus came down as R.G. Lee says in one of His great messages Jesus came down from the adorations of heaven to the abominations of earth. He came down from the coronations of heaven to the condemnations of earth, the delights of heaven to the defamation of earth, the glory place to the gory place, the majesties of heaven to the miseries of earth, the hallelujahs of heaven to the hisses of earth, the songs of heaven to the sneers of earth. Jesus came. He was that twig taken from the highest branch of the highest cedar and planted upon this earth in the incarnation body of the Lord Jesus. It was a humiliating entrance. Not only that, it was a holy entrance. He said in verse 22, He said, I will crop from the top of his young twigs a tender one and will plant it upon an high mountain and eminent. This king of glory is this highly exalted son of God came down and lived a life of common humanity. He came without pomp and celebration. He indeed should have been greeted by the kings of the world. And all of the great dignitaries of the world should have gathered around to see him make his entrance. But what did he have? Some lowly shepherds that came looking for him in that town of Bethlehem. No, he should have been invited with pomp and celebration. But no, he came as that tender plant. That, that twig, that tender plant. Isaiah 53 and I believe what is the Old Testament gospel, he tells of a very similar picture. Listen to what Isaiah 53 and verse 2 says. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. For he hath no form nor comeliness. When he sh we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, unlike artistry, Artistry will paint maybe this faint halo around the Lord Jesus. You know, you've seen those Baroque period type of paintings and they'll have that, they'll have that golden type ring around the head of the Lord Jesus. Listen, Jesus didn't come with a halo around His head. He looked like all of us. He looked like you and me. He was flesh of flesh, bone of bone. He experienced all the pain and weaknesses and the frailties of hunger and thirst that are part and parcel of the human experience and yet did so without one blot of sin. Our text says that he was placed on a high mountain. A high mountain. You know, I remember as a young child growing up in this area 
and driving to and from Chattanooga on Highway 11 all the time. And I remember always looking up on Lookout Mountain and, and seeing that. Well, it used to be, I think, an old hotel years ago, but it's Covenant College now. And it's got that big spire on the top of the mountain. I mean, you can see it all the way down the valley. All the way. It is high and imminent. It is a conspicuous, it can be seen from everywhere. That gives you some idea of what Ezekiel is talking about. He has placed this tender tree in a high and very conspicuous place so that all could see it. He is under the, the inspection of all eyes. You see, he was without sin. His life was a conspicuous one. Paul tells us in Galatians 4.4 that when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, listen to this, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. Jesus was subject to the law of Moses just like all of us have been. Just like all of us, when we come into this world, it is the law that condemns. Paul said, I would not have known sin had the law not told me what sin was. And so Jesus came under that same scrutiny. He was born under the law, under the legal requirements of Moses that we find ourselves under. He was under the microscope of all, and yet he was not found to be sinful. The Pharisees could not trap him. Though time and time again, they tried to trap him in arguments, in words, and yet they could not do so. The Sanhedrin could not convict him. Even his enemies could not charge him. Pilate himself said, I find no fault with this man. A Judas said, I have betrayed innocent blood. The thief on the cross said, this man hath done nothing amiss. You know, it's all well and good for people that, that are kind of on the periphery of our life, maybe looking on the outside. Uh, to tell us that we're a good, you ever been told you're a good man or a good woman, you're, 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 you're a really good person by those that are outside and you think to yourself, oh man, if you, if you could follow me around, <laughs> you know, if you were there with me day in and day out, maybe like my wife or my husband or whatever, and, and you could see what I'm really like all the time, well, you would have a different opinion of me. I want you to understand something that Jesus himself had people with him 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days in a year for three and a half years. Every moment of his ministry was shared with these traveling disciples that were with him all the time. And what was their testimony? His disciples said of him, In him was no sin. And he also was said of him, neither was there guile found in his mouth. His own disciples bear testimony that he had no sin. That there was not one time in which guile or deceit ever passed through his lips. Dr. James Crumpton, he, he wrote a paragraph or preached a paragraph that has always, always to me spoken the greatest about the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Let me read it to you. Jesus never struck a jarring note. He never made a misstep. 
On him, circumstances never left a fingerprint. Popularity never caused him to hasten a footstep. Hostility never caused him to falter. Temptations never loosened the moral fiber of his being. Yes, Jesus is a sea of sweetness without one drop of gall. There is not one sin to point to. In the imminent place in which he stands in history, there are none that can point a finger of guilt at the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is high and imminent before all under the law and found to be blameless. He lived a holy existence that He might be a spotless remedy for you and me. We who could not be followed for five minutes without faltering in some degree whether in thought, in actions, or deeds and here the Lord Jesus, He becomes that spotless one. The one in whom God parted the heavens and says, This is my Son whom I am well pleased. No, there's been no other like Him. Spotless as the remedy of God's, uh, remedy of God for our sin. There's room at the cross because of the remedy presented. There's room at the cross because of the redemption purchased. In verse 23, in the mountain of the height of Israel, I will plant it, and it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar. Why would one who is so lofty and high do such a thing for a rebellious, wicked creatures such as you and me? Author W. Dyer, Wayne Dyer, wrote these words, Christ uncrowned Himself to crown us and put off His robes to put on our rags. He came down from heaven to keep us out of hell. He fasted 40 days that He might feast with us all for all eternity. He came from heaven to earth that He might send us from earth to heaven. What would possess someone to do such a thing? I believe Christ's coming embodied God's plan of redemption. Notice in this seed, in this planting of a twig, I want you to see first of all the death of the seed. Now, I may be pulling at, uh, what do you call that? Splicing hairs. I'm splitting hairs here. I may be splitting hairs, but I want you to notice something very careful about these two verses. Notice the difference between verse 22 and 23. Notice the last phrase. He says, a tender one, and will plant it, what is that word? Upon an high mountain and imminent. 23, what does it start with? In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it. 22, upon... 23, in, in the mountain. Now this tender twig of God was not, planted, uh, was not planted upon the earth for a good example. Let's make that clear. Jesus is not an ethical, moral icon for us to strive and attain to. I want to be more like Jesus. I, I, I admit that. 
I want to be more like Him in my compassion, my kindness, in the way I deal with others, in the way I forgive, in the way I teach, and the, the way I lead. I want to be more like Jesus. But I want you to know this. Jesus was not a moral teacher specifically. He did not come to teach us morality, to teach us how to be better human beings, more kind to each other. No, He came to die. Jesus came to die. Just like in the children of Israel on the night before the Passover, the weeks before the Passover, they set aside a lamb without spot and without blemish. That lamb was set aside to die. It was its purpose. So Jesus, when He came to this earth, He came to die. And this tender twig was not an example, but came to die. Revelation 13.8 records that Jesus was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world all the way in the last book of the Bible, as it reviews the person and life of Jesus before creation itself. Jesus was a lamb slain, destined for the cross before the first bricks, before the first calling of light, before the first formation of land and the waters and the deep. Jesus was set to die for the sins of the world. Before He ever came, His course was set for Calvary's cross. The words of Ezekiel chapter 17 verse 23 remind me of what Jesus said in John 12, 24. Listen to what He said. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. The seed sitting on the shelf produces nothing. Here's a go. My, I remember when I was a little boy, and my dad always, my parents always had a garden. They always had rows of green beans. He loved them half-white runners. That's, that was the green bean he always wanted. And then he'd have some corn, and then they have okra, and then they have squash in the garden every year. And when I was a little boy, I remember my, after we'd, we'd cultivate the ground with his tractor, you know, and tear up the ground. And then he would take a little, a little plow and drag it through there and make these furrows. And he'd say, Ronnie, go down to the barn and get that bag of seed, uh, that bag of seed for the corn. And I'd go down to the barn, open the door, and there on the shelf in the barn, there was this little, you know how, you know how paper sacks get soft over time? I mean, they almost get as soft as cloth. And I'd go in there, and I'd grab that bag of, of seed on the shelf, and it would be all soft, been there for years, every season. And I'd come out there, and my dad would reach down and grab a whole handful of that seed, and he'd roll it up. So, all right, take it and put it back down in the barn. I've got enough here. And he'd plant them seeds one by one by one. And we'd go and cover those seeds over. A little bit of rain to fall. And after a few weeks, you'd go out there and look down that row. And you'd see these little sprouts starting to come up from the ground. At the same time, if you saw them little sprouts and you went down to the garden, I mean down to the barn, and you looked on that shelf, seeds that are only parted by uh, 50 yards or 25 yards between the two, the seeds on that shelf wouldn't be doing nothing. They wouldn't do nothing all summer. They wouldn't do nothing all winter. They'd just sit on that shelf and not produce one thing. But those seeds that would go buried in the ground would begin to germinate, would produce fruit, and there'd be ears of corn. And it wouldn't just be one corn that would be produced. It would be thousands and thousands of little bitty other kernels that would be produced from that one fruit. Listen, a, a, a seed must die in order for there to be life. That is exactly what Christ's life is. 
He was set upon the mountain so that he could see that he was without sin. A perfect sea, a perfect remedy, a perfect remedy. But in verse 22, he was placed in the earth. The seed was died. The seed was buried in the heart of the earth. Christ's life was taken at the cross of Calvary. As Isaiah 53 says, He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and was buried. What a beautiful picture of the Gospel. Between 22 and 23, we see Christ, that eminent, High under the law, that visible, that visible person taken, snatched, and placed into the heart of the earth, planted in the ground. And notice back in verse number 22. Notice this phrase. He said, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar and will. Notice that phrase. And will set it. And will set it. I, I got. I don't know. I just really didn't understand what did he mean. Did he put it in a certain position. What does that phrase, I will set it, mean? If you look up the Hebrew word translated, I will set it, in the Old Testament and see how many times it comes up and how it is translated so many times in the Old Testament, you will find that that phrase means to give. He says, I will take of the highest branch of the highest cedar and I will give it. I will yield it. I will release it. Oh, I tell you what, that is the gospel in a nutshell. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He gave His Son. He gave His Son on Calvary's cross. He gave Him to this earth. Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5, 8. But God commendeth His love toward us that while we were yet sinners, what? God gave His Son and Christ died for us. That is the death of that seed. Portrayed in verse 22 to 23. He is an imminent, visible uh, picture of, of that high cedar on the highest mount. Cut off and buried in that mountain. Now, not only is He, we see the death of the seed, but we see the life of the tree. Look at what it says. And in the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it. And it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar. The burial of this twig was not the end of the story. Just like we knew in that garden when we buried that seed, it wasn't the end of the story. Well, the disciples didn't realize that, but when they put Jesus in that tomb, it was not the end of the story. Because from that borrowed tomb, new life sprang out. And Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, was visibly, physically, bodily raised from the grave again. The apostle, apostle Paul, he finishes his gospel account by saying not only was Jesus died and buried, but notice what he said. And he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to this present but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James and then of all the apostles. And last of all he was seen of me also as of one born out 
of due time. Jesus is alive today. He's alive today. Oh, listen, this past week my, uh, I've heard of others that have, we talked about it some Wednesday night, that have deconstructed their faith and, and they have come to some conclusions. Remember Wednesday I talked about how that I listened to this podcast and this, this guy who purported to, was a Christian and he was investigating certain things and, and uh, abuse in the church and, and all these seasons I've been listening, all these episodes I've been listening, he has purported to be a Christian and now he comes down uh, to this next, latest episode and declares that he is no longer Christian, no longer, no longer uh, considers himself a Christian. I told you Wednesday I hadn't listened to that. I listened to it on Friday and what he has done is named abuse and after abuse after abuse he's seen his own close relationships of what he thought was genuine Christianity and those pastors examples had fallen by the wayside and been caught in, in, in criminal activity and sexual, uh, sexual misconduct and he goes down the list and down the list of what he sees and what he sees and what he sees in this world but that is not the reason to destroy your faith because it is not by, about what I see in, in people who are so called disciples. The reason my faith is not destroyed is because Jesus come out of the grave. That separates Him from everything else. Every person in history. He is alive verifiably. And by that because of what He said. Because of what He has done. Everything He said is true. And therefore regardless of who falls on my left. Or right, it makes no difference, no bearing on the words of Jesus Christ and what He said. The living Son of God raised from the grave. And because of this, my faith does not deconstruct. Because my faith is not in my pastor, my pastor's pastor, my deacon, my, my, my Sunday school teacher or these, these friends in the ministry around. My faith is not tied to them. It is tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so until you find the dusty bones of Jesus with the DNA to conclusively prove to me that Jesus is died 2,000 years ago, I will go on and believe that He was bodily raised from the dead, that, Paul, that Cephas met Him, that the apostles met Him, that as many as 500, James' brethren, most of all the apostle Paul himself, encountered the Lord Jesus Christ a living Christ he is that tree Jesus is alive today it is, he is the line of demarcation uh, between every other teacher leader, guru, shaman swami or cleric that has ever lived, lived the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the divine stamp on the approval of the authenticity of Christ's redemption our redemption was paid in full by Jesus' death on the cross and been accepted by the Father as a pleasing sacrifice for your sin and for mine. And then he talks about the life and fruit. He said, has boughs, has large, goodly, brings forth boughs and, and bears fruit. This tree is a goodly tree. The fruit of this tree's resurrection from the dead is seen in a myriad of lives of individuals. Not only in this church. I've heard your stories. I've heard them time and time again of how you've come to faith in Jesus Christ. How you own Him as your own. But that fruit transcends this building and goes out through all this community and around this country and around this world. This is a goodly tree that bears fruit. The fruit is seen in the myriad of changed lives. 
The word goodly here in our text indicates wide, large, excellent, glorious. That is a fitting description of the message which the cross brings to the world of lost sin and shame. The boughs of the gospel of this tree reach to the far ends of the earth and cry to every tribe and tongue and people of nation the good news of God's forgiveness of sin. The tree calls to us today. The tree is a goodly tree. Wide, roomy, proven over time. Jesus is that refuge Jesus is that redemption. Jesus is that remedy. Finally, there's room at the cross for you because of the refuge provided. Look at the latter verse, latter parts of verse 23. Said that it would be a goodly cedar, wide, fruitful. And notice this. And under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing. In the shadow of the branches thereof they shall Dwell. The latter part of verse 23 brings to us some of the most precious of gospel truths. This tree was not placed, but planted. Not simply to be admired, but to be a refuge. Notice first of all, we see plenteous redemption. Our text says that all manner of fowl came and found rest under this tree. And there are Thousands of variations all over the planet of different kind of people. People. People are different. All people are different. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I used to love birds. We used to have a, an Encyclopedia Britannica. That, that, that young guys, that, that's a book, and they had, it's almost like the World Wide Web in paper. Amen. And you had it on a shelf, and that's all you could do. And, but my favorite part of the Encyclopedia Britannica was the bees. For birds, I love birds. Birds, I, I don't know something about birds. I've always loved them all my life. And I would flip through and look at all those different kinds of birds. There were there were birds that were just common. I remember. I'll, oh, that's I've seen that in the woods near our house. Then there'll be those wild birds. You ever seen that bird of paradise? It's got all these wild plumages, a beautiful thing. Never seen one in my life. Then they had those eagles and hawks, and sometimes I'd see hawks around, or, or they'd have raven, different kind of birds. But they're all different shapes and colors. They come in all kinds of different passages or packages. You know, people are the same way. Have you ever heard somebody uh, say about someone else, man, he's an odd bird? You ever heard, you ever heard somebody, well, he's an odd bird. He's different. You know, because people are a lot like birds, because we're all different. We all come from different backgrounds. We all have different backstories of who we are and how we came to be as we are. You know, this text says that every fowl, every bird could find refuge in that tree. You know, you may be the type of bird that feels as though you're an insignificant sparrow. You know, nobody cares about you. You ever see those little chickadees, those little little bird, birds? You know, oftentimes when you pull into Walmart parking lot and you pull up and there, there'll be a handful of fries somebody dropped there and there'll be these little bitty brown birds maybe with a little black thing on the top of their head or they're brown. They're just common. Everybody knows them. They, they're not, you know, you don't get out of the car and say, look out, look out, it's a chickadee. Look how beautiful. No, they're common. Nobody pays any attention to them. They're just like every other bird. They, nobody pays. They shoo them off. They, they're insignificant. They don't stand out in the crowd. They're not exceptional at all. Listen, you may feel that way. 
You may feel that when it comes to the things of God, you're not accept, uh, uh, exceptional in your, in your understanding. You don't have great gifts. You don't, you don't have this or that. You can't, you can't speak well. You don't, you don't have this or that. Listen to me. There's a place on the tree for you if you're a sparrow. Notice also, maybe, maybe you're not a sparrow. Maybe you're a, you're a raven. A raven. The Bible talks about the blackbird, the raven, as a condemned animal. An animal that is condemned by the law of God. The raven, the blackbird, is, a, is, a, is, is known uh, throughout the bird world as being a very sly bird. Now also vile. Blackbirds, oftentimes, you'll see them as you drive down the road, there'll be a raven in the middle of the road picking at a piece of dead carcass, you know, and your car gets closer. They're smart enough to, to you know, fly off. And, and as soon as you pass, you look in the rearview mirror and they're right back on top. They eat that which is filthy. You know, maybe that's you. Maybe that's somebody in your family. That they're, they're vile, they're wicked, sly, unclean, cunning. Eh. Their, their beak has feasted on the unholy filth of this world. Uh, they, uh, they, they've, got, they've got drugs running through their systems. They've got alcohol on their breath. Uh, the all manner of vileness and wickedness uh, that is wrapped up in them. Uh, listen, I tell you, if that's the case, there's room at the tree for them. There's a place for the raven to come and find refuge and find security from the coming storm of God's judgment. Maybe, maybe there are some who are, they're not necessarily chickadees, they're not necessarily ravens, but maybe they're more like the morning dove. You ever going out in the morning and maybe for a walk in the early morning hours when the fog is everywhere and you'll see this beautifully shaped dove sitting on, perched on maybe the, the wires there. And maybe you can hear the, oh, you know how, I can't do it. You know how they, they make, ooh, and they make that sound. It's low and mournful. And you can't get too close to them and they'll, they'll flutter away. They'll be gone as soon as you try to get near them. You know, that may be, that may be someone like you. You've been beaten down by life, broken by sickness and sorrow. Your nights are filled with tears and, and mournful cries. Hey, listen, if that's your case, there's a place on the tree for you. No matter how sad and sorrowful you are, no matter how many hurts and damage you have, make your way to the tree. Come perch on its goodly branches and find refuge from the judgment to come. Hey, there, there are some that, are, that may not be chickadees or, or ravens. and They may not be uh, morning doves. They may be eagles. You know, eagles are supposed to be the, the kings of the, the, the feathered world. They soar high above everything. Uh, they, they, they have a lofty perch and they, they look down upon other birds. and They see the world from a place that very few ever get to. You know, maybe that's someone like you or someone you know. They, they have a, they're, they're the CEO. They're the one that's in charge. They're the one that has the, 
financial means to do whatever they want. They look down on other people. They're the higher society, upper crust. They're the ones that look down their nose to everybody else. Listen, it's the same tree. No matter if it's a sparrow or the lofty eagle, he's got to come down from those cliffs and find a place on the branch on this tree if he expects to endure the judgment to come. That eagle must find a place in the tree just like the sparrow, just like the chickadee, just like all the other birds. It's got to humble himself and come to that tree. Come to the tree. The message is this. There's plenty of room. Whatever you're like, whatever your past, whatever your problem, come to the tree. Come to the tree. Come fly with all your fears, with all your doubts and sorrows. Come, as the song sings, come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy at the cross. And He will surely give you rest by trusting in His Word. Come to the cross. Come to the tree of Jesus. A plenteous dwelling. And then also a protected domain. Look at verse 23. And in the shadow of the branches thereof they shall dwell. All manner of fowl can dwell under the shadow of this tree. No matter who you are or where you've been, you can dwell in safety in the boughs of the tree of Jesus. No more wandering from perch to perch, from place to place. No more fluttering from relationship to relationship, from hobby to hobby, from passion to passion, only finding emptiness from job to job, trying to find a place of safety and satisfaction. You can come to this cross. You can come to Jesus and find safety. All you need for life, protection, security can be found in the person of Christ. Psalm 91, 1-2 He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. If you're here today and you have never fled to the cross of Jesus Christ in saving faith, there is a storm brewing. There is a judgment coming. And one day that judgment will come like lightning from the skies and it will split this earth and there will be coming a reckoning with the God of heaven for those that are in this earth. There is a judgment day coming. There is a flood of fire coming. Fly to Jesus just like Noah was that safe refuge for all those that would believe to come into. So is the person of Jesus, the cross of Christ. It is that place of refuge to come and find safety. Isaiah 1.18, come now. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. In closing, John Hart was raised in a Christian home with a good education. But in his 20s, he, he turned away from God and went so far as to become an enemy of the cross, publishing anti-Christian literature, mocking the faith of his childhood. But in 1757, while under a bout of deep emotional depression, he fell under spiritual conviction over his sin after attending a Moravian worship service where the preacher spoke out of Revelation 3.10 which deals with that hour of the great tribulation which would come upon the earth, Joseph went home and he fell on his knees and wept his way to God. He, he later wrote somewhat of an 
autobiographical story in verse. Listen to what he says. It's a hymn we rarely sing in churches today. But listen to what he wrote. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. Come ye weary and heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Then the course goes, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in His arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms in this tree of Jesus Christ, in the cross of Calvary. There are immense charms and delights and securities and fullness of life that can ever be found in the person of Jesus Christ. I tell you today, there is room at the cross for you. There's room at the cross for you. Oh, listen, you know, we're, we're a fluttering people, aren't we? We fly and flutter from branch to branch and security after security. Oh, make your way back to Jesus. Make your re- relationship right with Him today. The cross is open and plenteous of room for you to come. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed and every eye closed. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for a gospel that is so beautiful and brilliant that it is enough to infatuate us all of our lives. Thank you for Jesus, that gift, that amazing gift that God has given to die for our sins. God, thank you for the room in the tree that any foul, any person can come. God, thank you for a whosoever will gospel. Father, I pray you be glorified. Reach hearts, touch hearts. God, stoke the fires of love for the gospel. Love for the gospel in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. We'll sing one, maybe two verses of near the cross. If you're here today and have a need or a burden, you come. Come to these altars. I'll pray with you. I'll try to take the Bible, show you how you can know Christ as Savior. You come as we begin to sing.